0: My guest this week is Ashley Blackwell, a Philadelphia writer who's tackled horror and cinema for publications like Roomorg, The Guardian, and Birth Movies Death. Her website, Graveyard Shift Sisters, focuses on black women in horror, and now she's a writer and producer on the terrific new documentary Horror Noir, a history of black horror now streaming on Shudder. It is thus entirely appropriate that Ashley went with Ganja and Hess, Bill Gunn's remarkable 1973 horror psychodrama starring Night of the Living Dead's Dwayne Jones as Hess Green, a respected anthropologist grappling with an inexplicable infernal thirst for blood after he's stabbed with an ancient bone dagger by an unstable assistant. This would be bad enough, but then Hess meets the assistant's wife, Ganja, played by the amazing Marlene Clark, who'd starred in Gunn's first feature, Stop. And Ganja has a very different take on his condition. A vampire movie that isn't really a vampire movie, Ganja and Hess was butchered by a nervous distributor after its can premiere, and spent two decades knocking around the exploitation circuit in a considerably diminished version. Gunn's original cut resurfaced after his death in 1989 and has since been restored by MoMA and the Film Foundation so it can finally be appreciated as the radical experimental work it always was. Ashley can tell you about it. This is someone else's movie.
1: It is a removal kind of away from what was going on during the 1970s as far as blaxploitation. The writer and or director originally wanted to make this kind of film... Um, they, they, what they, what the producers and executives originally wanted from him was like basically like a Blackula 3 they wanted something a lot more schlocky sh- schlocky I'm sorry okay. and um and and kind of surface and not as as deep as what he was what he wanted and what he envisioned and you know he originally was a playwright and um, someone who was deeply immersed in black art and black culture and also what black art meant to the black artist and how he and what my perception of Bill Gunn was somebody who really wanted to push the boundaries of kind of how we talk about black identity and grapple with the politics of it and grapple with what was going on in the culture during the time if you know um Addiction specifically, especially with addiction, even if we, will, if we want to go even further, what addiction did to the black community and black males, especially after they came back from Vietnam. Um, this is before the crack epidemic. and It was kind of that decline that kind of was all intertwined with what was going on in public policy, but also the personal and the black family. And I thought he did a really excellent job kind of like, you know, making this very dense quote-unquote black vampire movie that wasn't a black vampire movie, but it was. It was more about, you know, that particular idea of addiction, but it it expands so broadly with uh, these other aspects that that's why I've always... Had a difficult time kind of talking about the film, and it's been easy for me to kind of like watch it and get this kind of revelatory um, ideas about it by looking at it from frame from frame, scene for scene, and also maybe just even kind of circle, uh, kind of narrowing in on that one character, which for me, obviously, is Marlene Clark as uh, uh, Ganja Maida, and so um, and, and her character because you know, a lot of people focus on Dwayne Jones in the film, but I felt like she had a really significant, meaningful arc as well, and also just the radicalness of her character towards the end where she decides not to kill herself like she wants she's like i like this kind of you know this excuse my expression but this big dick energy i get from being (laughs) this vampire and you know i want to live forever and i want to have you know male lovers and and, you know just taking that agency and not kind of following hess and I, i love that i love that she when she had that monologue about her mother um how her mother shamed her for you know being a being a young girl growing up and you know kind of understanding her own sexuality and you know not being ashamed of it because she was shamed into being a being a girl when when you get to that point in the film and to have that arc and to feel comfortable with who she is is extremely empowering especially for a male director to Implement that into a, into this narrative,
0: and a male director in the early 1970s. Yes. I mean, I I first saw it in probably when the first VHS release came out, so it would have been about 91 or 92. Oh, wow! And I had never. I mean, I was in my mid 20s, and I was reviewing uh, everything. Basically, we had the Toronto Star had a video magazine, and so I was basically the the first string writer for that, and anything that came out came to me, and horror especially, and it was. I All I knew was that it was the movie with the guy from... Like, I knew about Dwayne <laughs> yeah. Jones, right? That was the only time I'd ever heard of it referenced in books. I'd, n- I'd never seen it. There were no screenings as, in Toronto, as far as I know, in the 80s. And so the tape came to us, and it was it was perfectly delivered. It was one of those things that just came in a black paper sleeve. There was no... I didn't, just the, the distributor and the title on mm-hmm. it. No box art, nothing. And I popped it in, and I had absolutely no idea how to process it. <laughs> I'd never seen anything like it. And it is... It's... Yeah, uh, I mean... It's one of the few vampire films that isn't wrapped up in Catholicism on some level. Yes. You mentioned shame and I thought, oh, yeah, there is sort of a little bit. But it's not um, its not an official sort of codified shame that they use. It's much more personal and resentful from mother to daughter. And it is so uh, uniquely its own thing. Like Gunn is inventing rhythms and trying to figure out how to – tell this story as he's telling it and i mean i know there are two different cuts and i think i didn't see the original cut first yeah but it's all kind of fogged up in my head in this miasma of of experience
1: yeah no i think that's a perfect uh, way of kind of describing it again it's it's definitely a film you have to watch more than once i feel like it's an acquired taste as well i don't think it's Mm -hmm. a movie for everyone but i think especially if you're a completist as far as uh, 70 cinema black cinema specifically um horror cinema, black horror cinema it's definitely something you should at least watch once um, and if it's something you don't even understand, it's really great to read about other people's perspectives I know there's a, a couple of video essays on it as well that are fantastic um, and so they really give you that uh, kind of those epiphanies that if you didn't kind of understand it from your perspective before, it's really it's a really great conversation starter because it's really interesting to hear others' perspective on it as well. Yeah. well uh, when did you first see it? goodness um <laughs> i think once i started uh my blog and i was just kind of e- exploring um a 70s um 70s horror cinema especially when you're dealing with kind of black characters and so God, it has I, it's so mucky my memory is how it came came into my radar because I know it got a resurgence kind of around the time I started my blog, and it was available to watch. Yeah, that
0: was when the uh, Blu-ray came out. Right?
1: Yeah, I think so, and I think I had a DVD copy or something, and I just watched it, and I was just like, I have no idea. again, I had no idea what I watched, but I knew I I liked it. There's something about it I liked, and I think again, for me, um, the idea of seeing black female characters be so left of center, and such a really bizarre narrative, just as like as this one, it was that that is. But that is what I found very fascinating about it. And so I kind of dug into that and then I watched it multiple times and I was getting more out of it as I continued to watch it. And again, exploring other people's perspectives, especially other black women who are having the same discourse and reading actually academic essays on it, too. It's, it's
0: fascinating. Yeah. I mean, I, I know what it felt like to experience it 20 years out of its context. I can't imagine 40. That's yeah. I, That's – it is – I mean, it it fits – you mentioned Vietnam and I'm glad you did because it feels like one of the first reactions to Vietnam Mm -hmm. the idea that something is going on away from us that we don't fully understand but the people are coming back are coming back changed and the metaphor is ingenious (laughs) and also incredibly disturbing because um, it's one of it's one of the few horror films about contagion and transference that doesn't have a moral judgment on the people who get infected. You know, it's always right. the guy who puts the electric blanket over the ice sculpture or the person who doesn't read the responses from the other team and gets and goes into the bad room. It just happens. He's just infected. I mean, well, it happens to the first guy. <laughs> uh, and the infection just finds people. And then that's a, a really disturbing metaphor for vampirism that I don't think – I mean, I certainly hadn't seen it before. Uh, in, in terms of the historical depiction of it, vampirism is always being taken or surrendered or, or right. you know, compromised in some way. And here you just have a guy who – he's really – he's not asking for anything. It just happens because he worked with the wrong person and then someone else gets – and, and the idea as well that it's – you know, vampirism is classically depicted as a curse but – it looks like it feels pretty good sometimes.
1: Yeah, it definitely. They they I feel like it they do kind of both. They they show how it's involuntary but they show how it's kind of embraced as well. Yes. And there's again the same thing. It's just, there's kind of this beautiful transformation to it. There's also this, you know, when he converts ganja it's it's he really takes his time showing you the process of it and it's not it it, while it's beautiful it is very slow and slow in a good way slow in kind of a way that really wants that really acts you kind of to kind of immerse yourself into it to really focus your attention on what you're seeing it's not it's not a movie that you can watch like you know with that kind of goldfish uh, uh, mentality or like or if your mind is really 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 preoccupied it really um, requires you to really be sharp on what you're seeing Mm -hmm. and so and even it makes me kind of think of even kind of the the dual the, the, the duality of even with their wedding so they have kind of a traditional they kind of have a traditional wedding with witnesses and she's wearing a dress and he's kind of got a tuxedo on but there's also kind of this ceremony that they have together that's um outside and outside in the field field where they're kind of wearing not necessarily ropes but they, it almost looks they almost look like they're wearing kind of blankets but they're but it has some sort of a, um, print on it that is uh, uh, maybe pan-african in nature and again I I, I I love what he's kind of doing with that as well because he's also kind of grappling with another movie that Marlene Clark did was kind of Lord Shango, which is, it kind of does the same thing where during this time period there, you know, if you want to talk about Afrocentricism, it's this, you know it's now it's young adults adults kind of grappling with we grew up most a lot of us grew up in these kind of traditional christian backgrounds but also we're kind of embracing this new identity that helps us be in tune with who we are as black people where we're living in a country that kind of suppresses that and we want to finally embrace it because we feel like we have the freedom to do so so again i think i think um, gun is playing with those ideas too very subtly in ganja has specifically
0: yeah it it feels like well i mean it it's Part of that thing about how he's making the rules up as he goes along, he's yes. figuring out how to codify the material as he's. I mean, maybe as he was shooting it, even because it does feel like the, the Pan African. Um, yeah, blankets is mm-hmm. it. It felt to me like that was what they could afford or what they already had, and putting it in the film makes it part of this new cultural thing that yeah. it's working on it's just it's again it's like transmission and contagion you, mm-hmm. you work you step in front of the camera and you're part of ganchen S. yes and whatever that is we'll figure it out in the, in the editing room or we'll figure it out 20 or 40 years later as people respond to it and process it it um it's really hard to explain what it was like to be a film critic especially uh, a, a horror critic before the internet because if there wasn't a book about it there was no way to even know something. You couldn't see pictures. You could mm-hmm. hear about images. I knew about this film only through Dwayne Jones being in Night of the Living Dead and looking into him. And it felt like, yeah, this received artifact when it arrived. I think I've – I mean, that kind of already described it. But mm-hmm. it is so odd to see that happen all over again in a, in a documentary that resurrects it. Because there was a moment where I thought, oh, we're not going to get too deep into it. And then, of course <laughs> – yeah, how can you not? Because yeah. it's seminal. It is so... Um, oh, I know what I was trying to say. Um, Nelson George, when he did the podcast, picked Sparkle, the okay. 1976 yeah, version, yeah, yeah. because uh, he said that it was the third wave of exploitation mm-hmm. cinema, and it was weird in that it was not technically black exploitation. It was just produced yes. under that aegis, but that he got to go see it when he was 16 at Times Square and go with a bunch of friends and see his kitchen reflected and see mm-hmm. life reflected. Ganja and Hess... Doesn't do that. It goes in a different direction of of representing a cultural experience that I don't think ever existed before. But it's building it and it's creating it and it's all credible. Like I I, yes. I, I believe that I'm seeing things that are. Connected to one another. It doesn't it never feels forced. There's the 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 illusion of black exploitation was that, and, and you discuss it in in the film with regards to Black and a few other moments, where you walk into a room and it's completely artificial. You know that you're looking at a set, you know that you're looking at something that's been created by people who maybe asked a question or two before they built it, but probably didn't. And nothing in Don Jen Hess has that feeling. And it's obviously because it's not made by committee, it's one man doing it. But... It all comes from somewhere, and it all comes from the same place in a really distressing way. I couldn't understand uh, why things fit together, even after the second viewing, even after the the, uh, original cut came out. It didn't clarify itself in the right way, and that's fine. I mean, it's it's not a failing of the film. It's just an incredibly disturbing experience to be watching something that knows so confidently what it's doing and is refusing to communicate. And I just— still don't know if it's because I was too old or because I'm white and because I just missed something but it all feels organic and believable and real in a horror film sort of way so it doesn't it doesn't feel like the culture is being blocked it's its speaking, uh, its it's it's transmitting on a frequency I understand, but not in a language I understand.
1: Yeah. I, it, 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 I think it is meant to – to your point, it's meant to be kind of a fly-on-the-wall type of a film. You're just kind of observing and watching things kind of happen. And they're very jarring, and some things are very fantastical. And there's a lot that he does with sounds and soundtrack that's um, phenomenal. That's Sam Wayman, I believe, he was responsible for it. And, um, yeah – j- also, there was no way we weren't going to spend some time with Ganjan Hess in this. Um, me and the executive director, uh, Phil, um, executive producer, I'm sorry, Phil Nobile Jr. Um, we both love that movie so much. So there was, I mean, he was trying to find every opportunity to put as much footage of Ganjan Hess in here <laughs> as possible. So um, yeah, because we we under we understood we we understand the movie as again it it's it's a film that doesn't get talked about enough like when you think of 70s black exploitation horror specifically everyone defaults to the black yellow, but no one wants to spend time with Ganja and Hess not no one but you know it feels that way sometimes and, sure. and we also again a part of what we what we're trying to do with this documentary is give people an education that they're engaged that they that they're engaged with so if we already kind of have your attention and now cuz i've seen re- audience reactions three times already and it's been really fantastic but like you know what the, what has been the most rewarding about it is seeing people come out of the theater and saying, "Now I have a whole list of films I didn't even know existed." And we we're we're almost certain. I'm confident that I feel like Anjin Hess is definitely one of those films.
0: Oh, how could it not be? <laughs> I mean, it's the one I, I, I'm going to be willing to bet few people have heard of. Yes, um, certainly in in the films cataloged in Horror Noir, I. There were moments where it's like, oh, we're gonna deep, we're actually gonna do a deep dive into people under the stairs, which is amazing because I saw that in the theater with an audience that had no idea how to process it. They <laughs> were just we were all laughing at different jokes and cringing at different moments, and uh, I was thinking, you know, like, oh, this is uh, the refutation of the Reagan Revolution, and these this is like Ronnie and Nancy in, in horror versions, but it never occurred to me until Jordan Peele mentions it that the whole thing is about. The, as he says, the black fear of white spaces and, and the sense that there are some places, you know, every horror movie is based on there are some places you don't go. Yes. But yeah, I was, what, 22? And it had never even occurred to me to think about it in terms of color and access and and, and race and gender. And, and it's just, these are the rules, right? And you never mm-hmm. think about what the rules mean or why they mean it. And, yeah. I'm sorry.
1: No, no, no. I was going to say, no, 100%. Um, I think for me, I watched it when I was younger, but seeing the people under stairs, you know, post Black Lives Matter, mm. it is really startling. Yeah. It, so, and I think, again, for a new generation, I think that it's really excellent commentary on you know now the Ron and, the Ron and Nancy kind of symbols be, are maybe it's Trump and. Melania, I mm. guess I don't know. Pence I don't know mother, if it's right? I yeah. I don't know it if it's necessarily Melania, but yeah, it's the, kind of the. It's maybe a, a, one similar or any kind of you know fill in the blank racist politician that you can think of, and you know seeing a young black kid be the hero is. Mm-hmm. It's, I think it's extremely revolu- It was revolutionary then, but it's definitely something that's going to really make people um, sit up and cheer now, especially people who aren't familiar with that one. Um, I really do wish that. We were able to get more footage of Kelly Jo Minter kind of talking about it more because she was on set and she is still good friends with Brandon Adams to this day. We tried to get him for the documentary; it just didn't work out with time and scheduling. That's you know as production does go sure. sometimes, but yeah, because I would have now that I've seen the documentary so many times, I would have loved to see him add more to that, especially as as a complimentary as a complimentary to what Jordan Peele was saying. Because I'm glad that we were in the editing room able to really show how seamless the influence of that film was on him and Get Out.
0: Oh, yeah. It didn't even occur to me. I mean, of course, it makes perfect sense. Yeah. But it didn't occur to me until I saw him exactly. start talking about it. It's like, oh, yeah, of course, that's where that came from. <laughs> but the uh, the idea, too, that um, a uh, a horror film... I mean, it's not new that horror films continue to speak to us. It's always been the way they work. But the things they tell us to be afraid of change over the years. So Ganja and Hess... Maybe has receded a little bit because vampirism isn't the big deal it used to be, and because yeah. it isn't in the shadow of Blackula as a as the exception. Also, because it just went away for a while in terms of distribution, but now in the I mean, it it predates the AIDS panic. It's this, in the same way that the thing is easily readable as an AIDS metaphor, even though it was produced before it had a name. Uh, I found that really fascinating to to think about all this bloodborne stuff and and the sexualization and the fact that. Um, if there is anything approaching a moral judgment in the movie, it's, yeah, you like sex too much and you're going to be a monster. But right. that predates the film and, and a whole bunch of other stuff by centuries. But it is fascinating to read it now and or to see it now and try to read it and understand how it fits in the present context.
1: Yeah, from what I know about history, I'm assuming, because I was born in 82, just for some context. So I think for me, just being um, a lover of history and especially what happened as far as um, – Social culture in the 60s, 70s and on, it, it does even feed into this idea of the decadent 70s, especially, you know, disco and, you know, sex and and, and drugs and addiction. And that was a part of that culture because I also I grew up in Philly. So in New York is not too far from, from sure, it. Yeah. And so, yeah. And I. I my mother even tried to get in Studio 54 once, you know, so <laughs> I, you know, and kind of like seeing her and her peers like be a part of that, like, you know, the 70s was wild. Everyone was going to concerts and doing drugs and all, the, all those kinds of things. I kind of, it's sort of, Ganjan has sort of kind of in a very, again, subtle way kind of predicts what kind of went on in the middle to late 70s as well. Yeah.
0: The the more open culture. And yes. just the fact that everything looks a little sweaty. That, that, <laughs> yeah, that I mean that's part of the film aesthetic at the <laughs> time but people look more real and, and that means the horror aspects feel more real almost uh, the same way the documentary approach in Night of the Living Dead just gets into the back of your brain and makes you think oh they're just following action they're not staging things Yeah, uh, and Hess has a sort of immediacy uh, like a, a handheld kind of unnerving sense that we're getting a little too close and not in terms of sexuality but in terms of danger mm-hmm. the idea that you know, it can get out, that, that the, the infection might get past the screen, which oh, is the, sure. the best thing about any disease movie, just the sense that it's, you know, you're not clean when you leave the theater and you don't feel like you should have touched the seat <laughs> when you sat down. But the, but the sense that um, what you're seeing is the beginning of an epidemic is the sense that something is getting out. Mm-hmm. And that's always my favorite aspect of horror so I plugged into that part right away
1: yeah and that's an interesting point too because there's also a lot of nudity and if we even go even deeper with that there's a fear of black male sexuality specifically Um, and there's a there's a penis or two in this film (laughs) and so and I know that I've watched it with you know friends and they found that very uncomfortable I could See it on their faces, yeah, and also um, that's another point, and also the text, the visual texture, yeah, it's it's also very dreamlike. So it, it it's it, it combines that realism with that that fantastical nature of genre cinema as well. I think Bill Gunn did a really excellent job with that.
0: Yeah, it's uh, it's still stunning that it's the kind of indie movie that you could make now for. You know, $25,000, and it really wouldn't change very much. The, no. the, the basics are the same. There'd be a couple of you know weird tweets in the movie that have to be some accommodation of, of social media. But I always love trying to figure out if if an older film can survive in the present day, but there's nothing that needs to be changed. It's all about insecurity, masculinity, panic, um, prowess, and hunger. And that stuff, that never goes away. That's yeah. always totally vital.
1: Yeah, and that's what makes it such a great horror film, because I, I've always championed and yelled about horror it's it's pushing it's it's push. it's poking at your insecurities it's it's poking at what you fear and what makes you uncomfortable because what makes you uncomfortable because it wants you to confront those things and that's why you're watching it you're you're seeing it on screen and then how are you going to grapple with it and how are you going to how's your how is your consciousness going to evolve from it um you know, Phil Noble Jr., he introduced the film last night in Philadelphia, and he said something really profound that I really appreciate. Um, he said he saw the movie in his early 20s, and he said he hated it. But I think what he realized is that he thought he, you know, had an idea of, I understand this genre, Then he sees this movie and he hates it. Sure. But then he realizes that it's a movie that's not talking to him and it's not for him. And it made him want to discover what he didn't know about the genre that he thought he knew so well and that's the beauty of a film like this
0: yeah i would agree I, I think um i didn't i didn't hate it but i i was aware that i wasn't the target audience and that it was i mean obviously it was an older film and all of that but yeah this just it's not pitched to me and i liked the fact that i had to lean in it didn't push me away and i i'm i'm finding that more and more now that and it's partially it's just getting old and going to see the kid who would be king and going eh, I would have loved that when I was 20 <laughs> but probably when I was 10 uh, but everything changes as you like ideally right if you continue to be open to stuff you can learn more things and discover that there's more stuff out there and I just love the idea of someone finding this movie now because they see it in your documentary mm-hmm. and just what are the other 88 minutes like like let's find out what this bizarre imagery leads to and finding out that ultimately it's more bizarre imagery but it does make Sense It like starts it, to make sense. It pulls yeah. you in. Yeah. And it's, uh, yeah, I'm so glad that you guys are doing even a small um, chunk of it to to, Absolutely. to bring it back into yeah. the consciousness. Yeah. Uh, is there, this is kind of an awkward fit for, for the final question on the podcast, but it's always the same. Is there anything of Ganjan Hess that you have used or borrowed or incorporated into your own work, into your own creative DNA?
1: Um, writing-wise?
0: At all. Yeah. I mean, is there anything, I mean, do you find yourself exhausted in quoting a line every now and then is that something that you use (laughs) but writing much? sure yeah
1: yeah no not quoting it again the soundtrack always sticks with me very much so the the soundtrack and the imagery has always it's always in the back of my mind sometimes sometimes I will have quiet moments where I'm just kind of thinking about it because I do like that it's just it's a piece of unapologetic black art that isn't afraid to be different and off-center and I think that Is how I've learned to live my life, pretty much. Um, Just growing up, you know, you don't see a lot of Black women who love horror, especially when you're young. Especially this is Mm pre-internet. You're the weird kid because you're not fitting in this mold of what Black identity is. Because when you're when you're young, you're you're always, you're trying to, quote unquote, fit in because you don't want to stand on the outside because that makes you a target for bullying and vitriol. So you're always trying to fit in. And I that never felt comfortable to me. I never felt comfortable being boxed in because I needed to fit in with the cool kids. And so horror for me was kind of a way to kind of always kind of step back and I learned how to be myself through it and so when I discovered, you know, there were black creatives producing this kind of work in the genre and something that's so raw, it just it, it's so self affirming and so beautiful and wonderful and again, just going back to what I said to bookend, yeah, just writing about it, it's it's about it's also a black male story but it's also a black female story and that balance, if you really watch it multiple times and really get it, you'll you will see that this is not feminist but almost feminist because it's trying to play because Bill Gunn is trying to play on equal footing with this is what this is probably this is I'm sure what black women go through and this is also what black males go through so and just doing that is it's it's um, pretty incredible
0: yeah and for the early 70s when that wasn't a consideration for most storytelling yes black or otherwise it was really you know male dominant and and they, there wasn't a lot of short of you know like um, I guess the Pam Greer films where she had Power, but not necessarily agency because she's still subject to male filmmakers and screenwriters. It was, yeah, it's still, it's weird and disquieting. And I'm obliged, I guess, to ask about uh, the Spike Lee remake. Have you, any thoughts?
1: Yeah, I was going to bring it up because I was going to say, I don't, I got to be honest, I don't know why he felt compelled to make this film because it has no passion in it and it doesn't, it's not a film, I don't even think it's a film that's visually interesting either and then he kind of takes the soul out of the the chemistry that Marlene Clark and Dwayne Jones even had in the film there's just it's 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 almost the opposite of what Gunn did I, I honestly I would and, and I know Spike Lee tends to be a pretty like one note kind of a person especially in public I don't know what he's like in his personal life but it just seems like my question to him would be like, what was so fascinating for you about that movie to make you want to well, make it? I wouldn't obviously, I wouldn't tell him like that I didn't care for it, but that's but I, that's why I wouldn't want to ask him this question because it just is, it 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 just it lacked, it, it lacked that. It, I guess it, the easiest way to say it is that it just lacked the passion that came from the original.
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm inclined to agree. I, I find that his films are his experiments are interesting because I can usually tell why he did them and yes. what the what the appeal was and with this with The Sweet Blood of Jesus it just felt to me like he had seen Ganjan Hess fairly recently and thought oh yeah that's a good idea and I, I'd love to talk to him about it as well I never got the chance yeah. but it doesn't you know I think about what what King said about Kubrick when they saw The Shining which is that I don't think this guy knows what a horror movie is but Mm. he's made one Mm -hmm. and I kind of feel the same way about this and it, it goes for certain effects that are clearly you know horror approved but it doesn't yeah passion is exactly the word it's just it's Bloodless, Is that right? In, yeah. In that for context? the most
1: part, yeah. Yeah.
0: And, and something like Death by Temptation seems to have been more of an influence than Ganjan has. Oh, for sure. On him, which is another one I'm kind of amazed you found footage of. I saw that oh, one yeah. on tape, too, back there.
1: Oh, my goodness. So, <laughs> yeah, because I had already seen it, and um, I was at a horror convention, and trauma is always – because trauma is close – I, I – I, Go to a car convention in New Jersey, and so trauma is super close to New um, close to Jersey because it's in New York. Mm-hmm. So, trauma had a table, and I was just browsing. I was just you know c- kind of killing time, um, and saw that they have Death by Temptation, and I was like, I have to buy this. So it wasn't. <laughs> so they did have it available. I know Lloyd Co- Kaufman has said before that it's probably one of the best films that trauma produced. So, um, I, yeah, we so we had so we definitely had that footage. Um, I think it finally was released on Blu-ray. So that's that's fantastic. I had to buy it. Um, so yeah. The cover art's amazing too. I love it. Um, but yeah, we're able to find that. And like I said in the documentary, I love um, I love that James Bond the third. He literally just you know took his influences from Michaud and Spencer Williams and made a film that again, he's a Christian man and he wanted to make this kind of morality tale that's about. But he uses these supernatural elements again. That's what I, that's why I love horror because it is so not in a box. It's so it's more than what people imagine. And, you know, for a film like that to um, play with genre elements, we could say, oh, yeah, this is, it's, it's, also, it's Tyler Perry-esque, but at the same time, it is a cool horror film to check out, especially if you are, again, a completist of this uh, subgenre.
0: Yeah. Uh, Tyler Perry actually, it's a, I would never have even thought about that, but it is exactly in, <laughs> in line with his sort of populist storytelling uh, and then heavy moralizing, but also trying to entertain at the same yes. time. And also, you just get that early sense of, or not early sense, but you get that sense of what practical effects could do if you put them together really fast, oh. and it's still sort of fun.
1: Mm-hmm. It's, still, it's fun, and I still it's still believable to me. I like the imagery. I like the makeup effects. I don't, I don't need CGI. Just, you know, if you spend 20 bucks on some prosthetics, because <laughs> that, it, it still it still kind of looks real, in a sense. You still, I don't know. I, I don't know how kids feel about uh, prosthetics today, or, spe- or you know, real special effects, but I still think that they are really effective.
0: Yeah, I think the fact that people keep discovering '70s and '80s horror is, is endorsement enough, right? That yeah, there's screw. still a market for it. <laughs> Bring it on. <laughs> My thanks to Ashley Blackwell, who you can see offering further insights into both Ganja and Hess and horror in general in *Horror Noir: A History of Black Horror*, streaming now on Shudder. You should also check out her website, GraveyardShiftSisters.com, for deep dives into all manner of black horror. Thanks also to Amanda Gunman-Rowe for setting this up and letting us use TIFF's podcast equipment. I really need to think about upgrading. You can find Ashley on Twitter at Graveyard Sister, all one word, and you can find Ganja and Hess in terrific, nearly identical Blu-ray special editions from Kino Lorber in North America and Eureka Classics in the UK. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner and elsewhere on the internet at NowToronto.com. You can also find this podcast on Twitter at Semcast, S-E-M-Cast, and on the web at SomeoneElsesMovie.com. If you feel like leaving a review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts or wherever you enjoy the show, that would be greatly appreciated. Every little bit helps. It truly does. Thanks for your support, and thanks for listening.